Welcome to Tempest, a history podcast. I'm Matt Smith. Today on the podcast is something a little different. News reached me this morning that Malcolm Fraser has passed away. He was 84 years of age, and for those of you who aren't familiar with him, he was the Prime Minister of Australia from 1975 to 1983. And while I was too young to remember that period, in recent years he's become a vocal supporter of asylum seeker rights, a stance which has taken him quite a long way from the current Liberal Party. Now for context, I interviewed him in 2009, and for the record I was a very green interviewer, and more than a little intimidated by this literally larger than life person. I made a rookie mistake, and the batteries on my microphone went flat, which explains why my questions are a bit tinny. So please forgive the audio quality on this, but I think he was a great man, and this deserves to be heard. So my first question was the obvious, asking him why he got into politics. Here's Malcolm Fraser. I mistakenly thought politics would fit in well with farming, that you'd have time to do both. Well, that very quickly was shown not to be so. But also, if you go back to the uh, wartime years or the immediate post-war years, there were very sharp divisions between the political parties. The Labour Party had uh, just attempted to nationalise the banks and all financial institutions, and people believed that that was not only socialism but near to communism, by democratic means certainly, where communists would seize power by force. But there was a sharp philosophical divide. The Labour Party really did believe that the means of production, distribution and change and exchange should be owned by the state, and they attempted to put that in place. They went a long way in Britain to putting it in place, and I had seen when I was at university there that it just wasn't working, that it was leading to gross inefficiencies. And in any case, I believe that um, the purpose of government really was to serve individuals and enable them to lead their own lives as free men and women. And if the state owned everything, that wasn't really going to be possible. And couple that with the Australian experience of an attempt to nationalise the banks, there was something to be against and very strongly against. And then when you looked at what the Liberal Party stood for, it was for the individual, it was for freedom, it was for the rule of law, it was for, at that time, a democratic government within the monarchy. It was for private enterprise, but did not totally deny the necessity for government activity and government enterprise. It, as I believe, espoused liberal principles in a way which I supported then and I'd support now. Very easy to make the division. You were against the Labour Party, and that gave you an incentive because they destroy the way of life that most people in Australia had grown up in. And the Liberal Party gave you the positive, or Menzies especially, gave you the positive, something to work for. So putting all this together, uh, the incentive, if you could do something about it, was quite strong. Um, you just mentioned Menzies. Did you admire him a lot? He was a great Prime Minister. He was cautious. He was a true Liberal. It's interesting the way successive Liberal leaders have said that they embrace the Menzies faith. Well, I think Malcolm Turnbull maybe does. I'm sure John Howard did not. When Menzies signed on to the Refugee Convention in 1954, and he would have been appalled at the policies applied to asylum seekers by the previous coalition government. Mm. It was Menzies who little by little whittled away the white Australia policy. If you had tried to do this openly, overtly, 
somebody would have scratched the redneck nerve and it would have been become very difficult, if not impossible. Mm. But Harold Holt was able finally to abolish it. And this was done in a speech by Hubert Oppen, Minister for Immigration, about 1967. It's true that Gough Whitlam got rid of some legal remnants which had no practical effect whatsoever in 1972. But in, in practical terms, the whittling away the destruction of the white Australia policy was begun under the Menzies government and continued ever after. You were quite progressive in the way that when you were Prime Minister, you addressed the post-white Australian policy by, you brought over 100,000 refugees from Vietnam post, in well, the post-war environment. Uh, two or three years in a row, we had about 20,000 mm. refugees coming out of Indochina. We'd fought alongside these people. We'd given them commitments. All right, the venture had failed. And I thought there was an ethical obligation, quite apart from the broad humanitarian motivations, which a lot of people believe we should have responded to anyway. But I thought there was a particular responsibility on Australia at that time. And I think America did likewise. America took a very large number of refugees from Indochina, something like one and a half million, I think. Uh, Canada took a very large number. Mm. Canada had not been fighting in Vietnam, but they still responded with very significant generosity, as they nearly always have, to a refugee situation. And um, this was an additional step, if you like. It was the first time there'd been any uh, significant migration of any kind for a very long while. From, mm. I was going to say from Indochina or whatever. There was actually quite a lot of migration from China in the 1800s. Yeah, yeah, for the gold rush times. Yes. But, but regardless, um, post-war, I suppose, that this would be the oh, first it, large... It was widening mm. immigration, refugee policy in the post-war context very significantly, yes. Was that sort of thing well received? I believe it was, um, because you know we were saying what these people were fleeing from and what chance did a family have. Because we were explaining the reality of the situation, I think um, Australians welcomed Vietnamese refugees with a good deal of compassion and, and concern. I think we would also welcome refugees from Afghanistan if people really explained what they're fleeing from mm. instead of calling them illegals, queue jumpers, potential prostitutes, maybe drug runners, maybe even terrorists. Seeing the very bad side of things. From Tampa onwards, there seemed to be a competition to denigrate asylum seekers, which was a very ugly chapter, I think, in Australian history. Mm. And what do you think about the current approach to it, which seems to be to subcontract our refugee problem to Indonesia? Well, I think there ought to be agreements with Indonesia and Malaysia. When we were taking significant numbers of refugees, we did persuade Malaysia in particular, and I think also Indonesia, but you might want to check that, to hold boats and have a camp where people could go in their territories and not just truff them out to sea as the Malaysians would have done if we hadn't had an agreement with them. But we promised them, and we had agreements both with America and Canada also, that we were going to take a very, very large number of people from these camps uh, and that Malaysia just wasn't going to be left holding the bundle. Without that sort of agreement, Malaysia wouldn't have established the camps and probably would have continued their policy of truffing boats back out to sea. 
And many of them were just river craft, totally unsuited to survival at sea. Many, I suspect, probably were lost and people drowned anyway. So we had agreements with regional countries that were important in enabling um, people to get to Australia. Now, if there was a proper regional agreement, and then if there were also agreements about Australia taking a significant number of the people who might be in an Indonesian camp, if it is on Indonesia, then that's something that I think might work and also avoid the necessity of people having an even longer voyage by sea in a pretty unseaworthy boat. On humanitarian grounds, that could become good policy and it would diminish the role that people smugglers uh, have. And a lot of this debate has turned on how evil people smugglers are and that because they themselves are evil, then what they're carrying is evil. Well, it's not the same thing. If, if an Afghan family have a couple of girls and if the Taliban are in charge and there's no future for the girls, they can't get educated, they can't get a job, they can't do anything productive, all they can do is marry and have kids. No other future whatever, living in ignorance all their lives. Years ago, Afghan society was quite liberated and women um, were able to advance through business, through uh, universities, the professions, in very, very significant ways. That had all been chopped off when the Taliban were in charge. And now with the Taliban seeming to have more and more success militarily, it's understandable that more people will be just got to get out before the Taliban take over. And so, you know, if you really understand the nature of the push factors, as they call it now, they're significantly greater than they were a few short years ago when they might have thought the attempt to establish a more open and democratic Afghanistan was more likely to succeed. I think the government, and the minister in particular, is trying to handle this in a reasonable and humanitarian way. But the opposition, with their rhetoric and their constant attacks on the government, are making it difficult. And uh, Chris Evans, I think, has held the line in a reasonably responsible fashion up to now. And I think even the prime minister might have modified some of his language. He was saying how tough his policy was. Mm as though toughness was the desirable quality. I, I think you do need a strict policy, but you also need one that's humane and compassionate and recognizes what you're dealing with. And I, I just hope in the future that at some point, politicians will learn that you don't try and score political points with people's lives, which is really what they're doing, especially the Liberal Party. If you were in politics now, what would be the first thing that you'd want to address, and what party would you belong to? <laughs> what party would I belong to? Well, they're both so different. They've both changed a lot, yeah. Uh, they've both moved to the right. Kevin Rudd's Labour Party might almost have moved into the sort of middle ground that the Menzies government held. The Liberal Party has some elements in it that are still very liberal in that sense but it's also got a very strong, very extraordinarily conservative group who almost behave for the Liberals the way the socialist left used to behave for the Labour Party in keeping Labour out of power in the state of Victoria. 
it seems that the socialist left would sooner be pure and out of office than have a reasonable policy with a chance of gaining office. Well, the socialist left in the end got done over and their extremism was pushed aside. And so I hope that the liberal strength in the, in the liberal party can reassert itself. I think Malcolm Turnbull's basic instincts are, uh, are liberal, and I hope he has the strength to be able to make that more and more assertive as time passes. But so your call would still be liberal? Well, I'm still a member of the Liberal Party because there are liberals within the Liberal Party. Mm. Let's just leave it like that. And what would you address? In today's world, well, you can't obviously avoid the issues of asylum seekers, but one of the great tragedies of the last 15 years of affluence is the disinvestment in health and education, especially by the Commonwealth Government. I'm told that if the Commonwealth Government was putting into universities higher education, the sums that were going into higher education 10 or 15 years ago, it would be about an extra $8 billion a year. Now, investment in education is one of the most important things for the development of a country in years to come. It's all very well to rely on overseas students to fund your universities, but that might well be a fairly short-term thing, and you, you build in a, a reliance on something which is, at the end of the day, might just not be there, because many Asian countries are spending huge sums on higher education on their universities and building up their research capacities, because they recognize that future wealth and well-being for their people will depend on an increasingly well-educated people. So there'll be less and less incentive to go to places outside their own countries. Uh, but quite apart from that, we've not invested in, in medical schools the way we should have. The idea that we have to attract doctors from outside and often from the third world, mm. I think is uh, an outright disgrace. Especially considering the good they can do in their own countries. Espe exactly. And you don't necessarily see it as much in, uh, in Melbourne, but if you go to regional centres, regional hospitals, the number of um, non-Australians who are acting, uh, who are doctors and nurses and whatever in these hospitals is, is huge. We ought to be able to supply our own needs for something like that. Well, partly because the University Commission was abolished, uh, this forward planning just ceased to take place. The previous government seemed to believe that the market will fix everything. Well, there are a lot of things which the market won't fix and where you have to make decisions or governments have to make decisions. Universities need to make decisions, but they need the resources and commitment of the resources often to do it. For universities, I'd re-establish and higher education a universities commission. Labor abolished it. They wanted to get their sticky fingers into higher education. Mm. So did the Liberal Party, so they supported the abolition. We'd be much better off having a very high-level committee advising on what was necessary to make our education institutions amongst the best in the world again and to make sure that in Australia we could provide not only world-class but maybe world-first education at every level of education. Now, this would be expensive. But I think it'd be about the best investment you could possibly have for the future. You can't do this in one year. 
And the tragedy is that in the years of affluence, when a lot of it would have been possible without much hardship, uh, now it's going to be hard for the government to find that kind of investment in the way the world economy is going in the years ahead. Much of the same can be said for hospitals and medical care. Fundamental research as an adjunct to university expenditure. Very often the great discoveries come out of purely fundamental research and you can't necessarily see the practical use for that research. Certainly not today, not next week, probably not in the next year or two. But a lot of the most beneficial results from scientific research come from purely fundamental work, which you don't necessarily know where it'll lead. Mm. So these are areas where the government can really decide whether a country is doing what it ought to do to protect its future, or whether it's just bumbling along. Now, the current government has made noises about reinvestment in both education and health, but how far it will go, how far it will be able to go, um, I think is, um, has got a question mark over it. And I'm not questioning their intent in saying that. How available will finance be to, to get the job done? Mm. Two other things, one domestic. There's no comprehensive water policy for the driest continent on the earth. And for Brumby to bring a pipeline of water out of the Goulburn water that could save the Coorongs. I'd sooner save the Coorongs if uh, Melbourne were forced then into a situation of almost having to ban showers. It seems a bit far-fetched. New sources of water uh, are going to have to be part of the future for Melbourne. And that doesn't mean making the Coorongs dry up and destroying environmentally important areas. It doesn't mean that we have to destroy the Murray. We don't recycle water. Uh, we don't make sure that every household or building has rainwater preserved. Uh, it's only a short while ago that it was illegal to have your own rainwater tank. So there's a great deal that can be done in the city and in the countryside. Internationally, we should be more independent. Preserve the American alliance, certainly. But our last defense white paper was an absurd document. At a time when the Prime Minister has established a committee under Gareth Evans designed to establish a roadmap towards total nuclear disarmament, he puts out a defence white paper that rests on the extended nuclear deterrent and the necessity to keep America involved in the Western Pacific. In my view, all of this has become urgent because the knowledge of how to construct a nuclear weapon is increasingly available. Yeah. More countries are closer to being able to do it. Some countries that do not have nuclear weapons certainly have the missile capacity, if they had a nuclear weapon, to lob it onto any capital in the world. And Japan and Germany would be two such countries. If there's more and more knowledge of how to do it, at some point, somebody will let off a nuclear bomb. And then you look at the environmental consequences of even a limited nuclear conflict, which I'm told would have devastating effects for climate for maybe decades ahead. So with today's knowledge, how do you prevent a nuclear accident of that kind? And I believe the only way you can prevent it is 
heading towards zero nuclear weapons. And if abolition is the goal, there'll be much less incentive for countries like North Korea and Iran to attempt to pursue nuclear weapons. What is something that you've been surprised to learn through your career? Oh, surprised or disappointed? Well, good surprise, bad surprise, really. Um, I suppose disappointed to learn that your fiercest political arguments are sometimes with your own side rather than with the political foe. You expect to have opposition from the political foe. You don't always expect to have opposition from within. I've been around politics too long to be surprised. It was in the Kosovo War that I learned absolutely that, that people say in war, truth is the first casualty. Well, there you learn that people you think are on your side will tell a lie just as easily as the enemy. Mm. And I was in Budapest in Eustace because I had care workers in jail, in Serbian jails, and I was determined to get them out. And bombs were going off all around the place. And in, in the hotel, the international press were, and you could get BBC World. And so I looked at the BBC News first thing in the morning, about six o'clock. And I'd see Jamie Shea, who was the NATO spokesman. And one morning I saw him saying, yes, we regret the collateral damage when a, a bomb went through the children's ward of the Belgrade Central Hospital, but it was the Serbs' fault because they had a tank squadron and a, a, a command centre uh, hiding in the grounds of the hospital. So I rang up somebody and said, I want to cancel my plans for the first half of the morning and I want to go to the Belgrade Central Hospital. And the Serbs, of course, knew why I wanted to go. And sure enough, a bomb had gone through the children's ward, but there was no tank squadron, there was no command post. Uh, the lawns around the hospital were freshly cut, they were pristine, there were no tank tracks, marks. There were no bomb marks anywhere except through the children's ward. There were no shrapnel marks in the bark from the trees because it's all in the past. Mm. So it was all just a lie. I had dinner in the same hotel with Mary Robinson when she was High Commissioner for Refugees. And a couple of days later she issued a statement NATO needed to be careful of its own legality. She was late for a dinner meeting I had with her because she said she'd spent the day walking through the suburbs of Niche, which had been totally flattened. Now, the, the NATO was not just bombing military establishments, they were just bombing Serbs. Mm. You know, the disappointing factor is that you have to know enough to know whether somebody is telling the truth. And that applies to your friends, your allies, or your enemies slightly sobering. That's Malcolm Fraser in an interview recorded in 2009 with a very inexperienced me. And you've been listening to The Tempest Podcast. If you like this podcast, you can find it on iTunes and SoundCloud. There's also a Facebook fan page, and you can follow me on Twitter at NightlightGuy. Until next time, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic, and thanks for listening. <laughs>